You're listening to Podcasts with Park Rangers, a show where we bring to you stories of the national parks and historic sites from those who know them best, park rangers. Get to know each park ranger for their love of the parks as we discuss history, science, and the beauty of nature from a unique perspective. I'm your host, Lucas VK. Today we interview Cassie Brandstetter, the lead interpretive ranger at El Malpais National Monument, located just west of Albuquerque. Just in this single park itself, if you're willing to explore, if you're willing to look around, you'll find that little bit of ice that's sparkling the sunshine underneath of a lava rock. You'll find that, that hidden pot shard that no one else perhaps has ever touched or seen before. You can connect with that piece of human history that's been left in this area. Stay tuned. We'll enthuse about ancient lava flows, life amongst the lava rock, and beautiful night skies at El Malpais National Monument. One hundred and fifteen thousand years ago, lava erupts from El Calderon in what's now El Malpais National Monument. Pea-sized rocks called cinders are vaulted hundreds of feet into the air along with lava bombs measuring three feet in diameter. These masses of congealed lava solidify in the air and wrap themselves around trees in their path. From a trench on the side of the cinder cone, lava flow mows down everything in its path, changing the landscape forever. For the next 110,000 years, volcanic eruptions will shape the area of El Malpais into what it is today. And after devastation, life will spring forth. However, this life is very different from others you find in the desert. On top of the McCarty Flow, a pygmy forest of ponderosa and pinyon pine springs forth around the time Spanish conquistadors explore the area. You can see these trees today growing directly on top of the lava rock in small patches of soil, but they are only about one-third the size of their full-sized relatives, some only as tall as an adult human. To live on the lava rock, plants and animals must adapt, sometimes causing new species to spring forth. In 2016, amongst the colonies of moss unique to the lava tube caves found here, scientists discovered a new species of millipede found nowhere else in the world. When life is forced to live in harsh conditions, unique species and genetic variations evolve in order to survive where it seems life shouldn't even exist. To learn more about this barren and dramatic volcanic landscape, we speak with Ranger Casey Brandstetter. My name is Casey Brandstetter. Welcome to El Malpais National Monument, to one of our 417 national park units we have in this country. Ranger Casey's career with the Park Service spans eight years and 10 different parks. She became a park ranger soon after college when she fell into the job. I graduated from college with a degree in anthropology and sociology 
and no idea what to do with a degree in anthropology and sociology. <laughs> but I loved the study of it, and I had a friend who had done an internship with the Student Conservation Association with the SEA. And the Student Conservation Association is a great organization that gets a lot of people into the park service, and they got me into it as well. Casey quickly found she loved being a park ranger, and the ideals of the NPS matched her own. It was the summer after I graduated from college, and they brought me to Hovenweep National Monument um, on the border between Utah and Colorado. It was very different than anything I was used to. I'm from Missouri. Um, nice uh, and green and rolling hills, and they popped me in the middle of nowhere in Utah. Put you in the desert. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it was gorgeous, and it was lovely, and the, what I learned about the mission of the agency, what I learned about the teamwork that creates a national park site, um, really just got me stuck and I got the bug, the National Park Service bug, and I've been with it ever since. Yeah, through 10, 10 different units and now yeah. here <laughs> at El Mal Pais. What does El Mal Pais mean and why was it given that name? So El Mal Pais means the Badlands, and it was given that name because the landscape that we protect is primarily the lava flow. And lava flow is a very hard landscape to traverse over. Um, if you've ever hiked on it, you know that's very unstable to hike on. Um, you got a lot of up and down underneath of your shoes. If, and imagine trying not only to hike over it, but to transport goods over it, to transport cattle over it. It was a bad land for those types of activities, especially whenever the Spanish first came into this area. And were traveling inside of the quickest way, of course, to get from A to B was to go over the lava flow, but that wasn't going to be a simple process for all the goods they had with them. Mm. So they named it the Badlands. Right, because it was not good for <laughs> what they were trying to do at the time. Exactly, right. not easy for travel. Right. They considered it not easy for travel, but natives in the area have been using it for travel and for crossing goods over for many, many, many years, even before the Spaniards got to this area. Uh -huh. So the Spaniards couldn't do it, but the natives have been doing it for a while. Sure. <laughs> so they were practiced in it. Yeah. Um, El Malpais actually has a lot of diverse landscapes. It's not just lava flows. Uh, there are sandstone bluffs here, um, a beautiful arch, which we got to visit, mm -hmm. um, and the lava rock. There's tons of that. Um, can you describe overall the, the diverse and often breathtaking landscape for the listeners? Yeah. Um, so we're in a high desert area at this part of the country. So you have that landscape to, to see the, the breathtaking um, junipers and sages and, and desert brush that you can kind of encounter and all the wildlife that lives in that area. We also get some higher elevations here too where we get um, some larger plants that really provide some, some neat diversity. There's Douglas fir and ponderosa pine that can be seen here and those trees can actually be seen growing in the lava flow. Mm -hmm. In the older lava flows, you get a lot of plant life that has developed and grown in the little pockets of soil that's being created on the lava flow. And seeing that combination of that really hard rock, of that um, badland, as some tend to call it, along with this growth that's happening, is it's really stunning. You can see those diversities in that view from high up locations like the sandstone bluffs that we have here, and a lot of neat sandstone um, that's in the area. So we mentioned the, the diverse landscape, um, didn't touch too much on the geology, and many of our listeners might be wondering, where did all this lava rock come from? 
Were there ancient volcanic eruptions here? Newer ones? Maybe both? This part of the country is right on the edge of the Colorado Plateau, so that big uplift of land that occurred. And since we're right on the edge, um, we are in a very thin spot of crystal area. And you can all almost imagine like you're playing with slime and you <laughs> spread across that slime. <laughs> you have like two big chunks that you're holding in your hand, you spread them around right in between. It's gonna be very thin and the crust here is very thin. And it's allowed for, for magma to come up from, from the earth mm -hmm. um, in this thin section. It's called the Jemez alignment that we're on and it's a whole section of volcanic activity that you can find in this section of, of New Mexico and into Arizona as well. Um, it's a fairly, what we have here in El Mal Pais are fairly new volcanic activities okay, um, so in geologic time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's newer. So our our major flows that we have run from about 60,000 years ago to 3,900 years ago. Um, though in this area, volcanic activity has been happening for about 700,000 years. The most easily seen lava flows that you can still get glimpses of as you're hiking in this area are in between that quarter of 60,000 years ago to 3,900 years ago. So relatively very new in geologic terms. Oh yeah, that was just yesterday yeah. by geology standards. <laughs> this area is also pretty well known for the lava tubes that people are able to go caving in. Can you describe a lava tube and how it's formed? Sure. So the formation of lava tubes and a lot of the different features that we see today in our older hardened lava, we can actually see being formed in other locations. The type of uh, lava flows and lava features that we see here and kind of vents that we see in this area um, are actively happening in Hawaii. And so we can easily see how they're being made by looking at those active locations and comparing them to places like here that aren't active any longer. Mm -hmm. um, in the sense of lava tube, we, you can see lava tube being created in Hawaii and you can go into non-active ones in Hawaii and of course you can do that here too. Um, when lava is flowing, the top section of the lava um, tends to harden first. So it's hardening first because it's exposed to the air, which is sometimes colder. Um, it's exposed to that, you know, temperature variant that is at the bottom of it. And that hardening section creates a top kind of crust to it. But the lava below that crust is still flowing. Um, and it can kind of create a tube in that sense. Um, you get hardened sections that will go around it, or for example, if a lava is on the surface and it's flowing over older lava flows, it's flowing at the past the least resistance, um, kind of moving through different spots and building up a core of hardened, exposed lava on the sides of it, creating a tube. Um, we have many tubes in this area. About 200 um, caves have been identified inside of El Malpais National Monument. Wow. And we have five public lava tube caves that folks can get permits for um, here at the visitor center and then go out and explore themselves with, with the right safety gear, of course. Sure. <laughs> So what is that that proper safety gear? So we highly recommend that everybody brings kind of typical caving gear, that you've got gloves, um, knee pads, helmets, and three sources of light for every individual. Though the entrance of the caves, of course, have a lot of natural light inside of them, uh, most of our public caves are very undeveloped. So there's no unnatural light, there's no man-made lights inside of them, there's no real paths inside of them. Um, these wild caving experiences really give you a chance to have an adventure. Yeah. 
Very different from Carlsbad Caverns, which we visited. Very different than Carlsbad Caverns, yeah. yeah. With the amount of um, development that's been done in that cave historically and still continued on today, um, it's a different experience. Yeah, wild caving. Yeah, wild caving. (laughs) So you mentioned the rule of three, which is not only three lights, but bring three people. Three people. Mm -hmm. Three people, too, is always a nice one to have with you. (laughs) (laughs) The kind of thought behind that rule of three people is that if one person of your group of three gets injured, then an individual can stay with the injured person and an individual can go get help for that injured person. So the rule of three is always a nice one to have. Yeah, Yeah. good things to keep in mind if you should come here and get a permit and go do some wild caving. Yeah. So... I wanted to also talk more a little bit about the people who were exploring this area. You mentioned the Spanish settlers and also prior to that, people who were maybe more experienced in traversing this landscape. Uh, Were people actually living in this area during the eruptions, though? Do we know? We don't know. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we don't know. Um, that kind of, of history, um, that, at least not that I'm aware of, do we know if um, there are archaic sites in this area. So like there are ancestral Puebloan sites that we have in the park, and then there are also archaic sites that can be found in the park as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those seem to be after the lava flow. Um, happened and after it hardened they were using it whether or not the people living here during the lava flow we're not certain there are areas where you can have that definite and definitive um, proof that there were people there during lava flow for example at sunset crater national monument in the flagstaff area um, that lava flow is much younger it's about a thousand years old even newer than here yeah even newer than here it's about a thousand years old and People were definitely there at that time frame. And the way they know that is because they left behind offerings on the liquid lava flow that was flowing, and those hardenings hardened, or those offerings hardened uh-huh, right. <laughs> into the lava, and you can now find that evidence of it today. Um, we, Not that I know of, have any reference like that in this area. Right, okay, yeah. because by geologic standards, it was just yesterday, but by human standards... It's much longer. Much longer, <laughs> yeah, a long time ago. Are there still active volcanoes in the area now, or is everything pretty much dormant? In the El Malpais area, none of our um, volcanic locations are active. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, going back to the people, we have the Zuni, or Zunai? Zuni. Zuni, mm-hmm. okay. So we have the Zuni and the Acoma Pueblo uh, living near the volcanic rock. Did people live on the volcanic rock, or did they just travel over it? There, There's definitely lots of signs of travel. Um, for example, on our Zuni Akama Trail that people can still um, traverse over today inside of the park, some of the cairns, the rock piles that guide that path, um, are historic cairns that have been used for a very long time um, by the native peoples as they kind of did that same path. Um, that I know of, there's, there's no, well, I'll take that back. Um, I, I went out caving couple weeks ago with with our resources staff who have a, a great knowledge of the lava flow and the kind of different um, artifacts that have been found on lava flow. And there are many amazing things that are found in lava tooth caves especially. Um, but I believe that there have also been evidence of caches and perhaps um, 
maybe living areas. I'm not sure I, I could go that far as saying living areas,、mm-hmm. but definitely caches of where things were kept、um, and and visited very frequently on lava flow. Okay.、Um, There are sections of land in the lava flow that are called kapukas, and they're they're areas where the lava flow actually went around naturally. Perhaps they have a slightly eleva- higher elevation; they're a little bit of a more rise to them, so that lava flow didn't go over that landscape. It actually went around it, and that natural landscape, that that ground or sandstone that's typically in that location.、Um, Is a really nice spot for people to stay at or to cache things because it doesn't have that hard rock on it. It's a bit more、um, easier and has more plant growth in that space. So that could be an option.、Um, I don't personally know of any necessarily like, homesteads that have been in that area、right. specifically. But、Or、perhaps these kapukas were areas to、uh, camp.、Uh, mm. Perhaps there were areas that were being used as resource within the lava flow. Probably not hospitable for for living, but certainly traveling over.、Yeah. And there were definitely spots、um, on the lava flow where they collected water.、Um, water tends to stay in the lava flow. You know, it's a very porous rock, and they can and it freezes in the colder sections of the lava tubes. So chipping off that that ice that can be found in different lava tubes, or collecting it as it melts from those colder areas, was a very common practice.、Um, making it. Almost a water source in this not water-rich area. Right. So going back to the the idea of New Mexico as the land of fire and ice, there、mm-hmm. was there was both living side by side. There still is. There is, yeah. yeah.、Mm-hmm. We've hiked over some of these areas. We've seen the Cairns. We've seen the very rough terrain <laughs> that can do a number on your hiking shoes.、Mm-hmm. Uh, how did native peoples? Deal with all those sharp rocks. <laughs> Yucca sandals. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> they didn't have the gear that we have.、Right. Um, they didn't have the great hiking shoes that we have, and yet they still、um, utilize that landscape、um, to a strong extent, which is kind of amazing to think about. It is. It is pretty incredible. The resourcefulness.、Mm-hmm. From there, we wanted to talk a little bit more of biology.、Mm-hmm. You actually mentioned earlier how there's a good bit of Plant life that's growing on the lava rock, and this lava rock must be—I don't know—twenty, thirty feet deep, perhaps in, in even areas, deeper in、yeah. areas.、Uh, so, how are the the plants and trees surviving in that that rock? Yeah, a few different ways.、Um, so, you know, one of the necessary things that you need is is soil、um, to create some kind of plant life,、um, and that. Is actually being made on the rocks on the lava flow. If you've walked in lava flow, or if you are going to do that in the future,、um, you'll notice that there's some really amazing lichen that can be found on the lava rocks.、Um, that lichen actually breaks down the rock itself and can almost turn it into a type of soil to begin the process of plant life in that space.、Um, so that's it's one of the beginning phases. Of course, with that soil that the lichen can create by breaking down the rock,、um, that erosion creates by breaking down. The rock into smaller particles that can be utilized、um, that just get blown in with the many great sandstorms that and windstorms that we have here in、mm-hmm. this area.、Um, you get that soil started in the location, and it's a collector of water.、Um, in these cracks and crevices, you'll find a lot of moisture inside of it. That's that's all you need, really. <laughs> right. Yeah. Little deposits of ice, which becomes water, which becomes、um, something that the the plants can utilize. Yeah. 
And we did notice some softer areas even among the, uh, the lava, which I imagine is that stuff that's being broken down and slowly becoming soil that's, yeah. that can be used. The environment though overall from what we have hiked is pretty harsh and also unique. Uh, as we learned in the first two episodes where we interviewed rangers at Carlsbad Caverns, sometimes you find unique creatures living in these sort of places. Uh, are there any such creatures here? Yeah, yeah, especially in the lava tube caves. Um, actually, something that is being actively studied here in our national monument are the moss gardens that can be found at the entrances of lava tube caves. Um, many of the caves in this area are at the entrance are a very special collection of temperature and moisture, and you get a garden of moss that grows only in that one little spot. Mm -hmm. um, as our resources had once told me that some of these moss gardens perhaps are left behind from the last ice age in the area, oh, really? um, wow. where this type of vegetation was widespread throughout the location with the moisture, and then slowly you know, went down and down and down in its um, range until the only place you can find it now is in this tiny little entrance to some of our, our um, lava tube caves that we have mm -hmm. in the area. Within the moss garden, it is a habitat um, for tiny living creatures. If you ever go caving in this spot, you'll see our big signs that say, you know, don't step on the moss because of the moss itself and what's growing inside of the moss was living there in that habitat. Mm -hmm. um, we'll find um, endemic invertebrates that can't be found anywhere else in the world that have been um, identified here in our caves. Wow. Sort of an endangered species living in little microcosms here, yeah. right? What about other animals or plant species that are uniquely suited to these harsh climates? Well, the you know the plant life, the, the cacti that we have in this area, you know, really fit into kind of the dry, high desert atmosphere that we have. Like I mentioned, there are lichens, but we get a, a wide variety of animals that you will see in other spots, mm -hmm. but have just adapted themselves to live in this area. For example, on one of the wildlife cameras recently, they spotted a bear out on the lava flow, which you wouldn't necessarily expect. No. Um, dogs on leash are allowed in our park, but we always say don't take them on lava flow because it tears up their paws, and it does. Mm -hmm. It's a very harsh rock, as you experience, tears up your hiking boots, you definitely hurt the paws of animals, and yet you'll find that these wild animals have adapted so that they can cross over it. Mm. Um, how specifically, I'm not sure, perhaps they get a thick callus set on the bottom of their paws that helps them out. But it's always ex exciting and interesting what you'll find unexpectedly. And what you, can, what you even said yourself was a bit of a harsh atmosphere and landscape that you wouldn't think a person would utilize, much less animals and wildlife. Right. You have to develop a thick skin, which I suppose the bears have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that we discovered in, it's a bit weird, uh, <laughs> it, it was a weird thing we learned while hiking, mm -hmm. is that they used to use the lava for bombing practice around World War II era. 
Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> I can tell you a little bit about it. Um, so one of our most recent lava flows in this area is called the McCarty's Flow. And the McCarty's Flow is primarily from the McCarty's Crater. And if you go to try to look on the horizon for the McCarty's Crater, you won't find much there um, because it was a bombing practice location. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S. military um, had rights and access to this spot, and they were practicing the bombing techniques they had, and they would use that as a target point. Yeah, we read that they actually had to go in there with bomb squads to make sure there wasn't any uh, ordinance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, very difficult for places like this that have been used for practice in the past, you know, just in case one of those bombs hadn't exploded on impact whenever the practices were going on. Right. You want to make sure that's cleaned up to the best of its abilities. Um, if you do happen to find anything while you're out there that looks odd, don't approach it and just report it to a ranger. Right. <laughs> if you see something, say something, yeah. right? <laughs> So another thing we turned up in our research was uh, we saw that you occasionally lead night sky programs here in the park. What types of things can people learn and do at those programs? So once a month, um, we coordinate a night sky event around the new moon. So when the sky is at its darkest, whenever you can see the most as you look up. And coming to those programs, we have them out here at the Visitor Center, as well as at different locations inside of the park. They're a little bit darker. Um, the Visitor Center is next to the town of Grants, which, you know, gets some light pollution. Um, so even though we can see some amazing things, even just right here at the Visitor Center, whenever we have events that are further in the park, it's a little bit of a drive, but it's well worth it because you see so much more in those dark areas with very, very little light pollution. We're actually thinking of trying to pursue getting a National Dark Sky designation mm-hmm. for the park because we do have just such pure um, night skies as you get further back into the monument. Um, what you can see and learn there i mean it's the entire universe worth really sure. um, <laughs> you can see the milky way um, for example the last night sky program we had we discussed a little bit some of the colors of the stars that you'll find because as you get into these really dark locations you'll be able to pinpoint that the stars don't actually all look the same that many of them have distinct colors and variations but why do they have that is one of the things that we discussed during our last night sky program. Each one has a kind of a different topic that we do. And as you can imagine, like the number of stars in the sky, there are so many topics that can be discussed whenever reviewing what can be seen. Endless possibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been in some of the places that have that dark skies designation. Yes. And I can I can see how even the more populated areas near here aren't especially bright. Mm-hmm. So escaping those uh, and some of the light pollution, as you mentioned, yeah. has to be pretty fantastic. We have about 114,000 acres in El Malpais, and some of it is close to populated areas like right here mm-hmm. at the Visitor Center in the town of Grants, but a lot of it, most of it, is um, very remote. Yeah, it's easy to explore into those more, more remote areas. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ways that these open spaces and beautiful night skies spark your curiosity, mm-hmm. personally? I think it's so important to, to realize that in our day-to-day life, we're surrounded by so much that 
just 100, 200 years ago, we wouldn't have been surrounded by. You know, humans have evolved to be surrounded by quiet, dark skies, natural sounds, and we, we don't get that a lot these days. Um, by taking a step back into these natural atmospheres, you're almost taking a step back in human evolution to see what our ancestors would experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, of course, the things that we've invented and the things that we get to enjoy are wonderful. I love Netflix. I do. Everybody does. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, um, being able to take a step back out of all the technology that we surround ourselves with, even just for a little while, takes a moment into the history of not only the earth, but the history of humankind, too. And it's amazing to, to me to be able to surround myself in moments like that. Right. Because although we've created all this technology that surrounds us, we are still evolved and attuned to, as you mentioned, nature and, and the yeah. quiet. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And you pick up on so much that you wouldn't expect that you're able to whenever you really just sit down in it for a while. Right. So we know that you've only been here at El Mal Pais for a little while, about six months, mm -hmm. correct? But it does seem like you've absorbed a whole lot about this park in the six months. <laughs> what drives that curiosity in you? Well, you know, our National Park Service is just so diverse and so varied. Um, and I know that you guys are on your own adventure to see all of the units. I probably won't be able to work at all of the units in my <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> You've covered a good good assortment, though. I'm trying. I'm trying. Just because they're all so diverse and so unique, it's almost like trying to to get them all or trying to get a, a taste of every different type that we represent here in the country. Because the national park units represent, of course, our natural aspects that we have in the United States, but also the history of our nation, too. Mm -hmm. And that history is so important not to forget, like the history of the landscapes, but the history of what we've been through as a nation. And, and we can relive all of that in these places. Um, and I know that there's so much more that I didn't learn in my high school history class <laughs> <laughs> right. that I can partake in just by visiting or being in these places. Yeah, by being a student of life and going to these places that mm -hmm. have been protected for us to learn from. What makes this park, El Mal Pais, special to you? I think what makes it special is all the hidden gems that you find inside of it. Um, just like in the entire National Park Service, you find these hidden gems of units that you fall in love with, just in the single park itself. If you're willing to explore, if you're willing to look around, you'll find that little bit of ice that's sparkling in the sunshine underneath of a lava rock. Um, you'll find that, that hidden pot shard um, that no one else perhaps has ever touched or seen before. And just by seeing it and leaving it there on the ground, you can connect with that piece of human history that's been left in this area. So we've talked a lot about this park and a little bit about the, the National Park Service as a whole. Uh, what's the importance of the National Park Service system to you? And why is it important to preserve it? Just like our, our mission says, you know, we're here to protect and preserve for future generations. 
And that's not always an easy thing to balance. Um, if, you, if you think about the mission in and of itself, it's almost two conflicting ideas. We're protecting and preserving the resource for the enjoyment of today and future generations. Um, enjoying and protecting aren't always the same thing. And I kind of like that balance. Um, I think it's so important for people to come here and enjoy it and see it, and see it in its protected state that we have it at. Um, to make sure that they see that protected state while enjoying it, it leads them to be stewards as well. Um, we're here as park rangers every day to steward the landscapes that have been set aside by the American people, but we aren't the only stewards that this landscape has. The entire nation is a steward for our national park sites, and by coming here, they're able to really take on that job themselves too. In a country where we are constantly on as a society, it's nice to have places we can disconnect and explore something different. Ranger Casey's curiosity has inspired us to continue our quest as lifelong learners, to study our history as a nation and seek out moments where we can stand in awe of something bigger than ourselves. Whether it's hiking amongst ancient lava flows looking up at the Milky Way, or contemplating relics of the past. These places were set aside for us to enjoy. It's good to be reminded that these are our national parks, and we are all stewards. If you enjoyed what you heard, subscribe to our show on iTunes or Android. And to help keep this show on the road, check out our Patreon page via the show notes in the description, or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. Stay with us through the final minutes here for a short preview of our next episode. We like to highlight on our show ways that a typical park visitor can give back to their national parks. El Malpais National Monument always needs volunteers for trail building, cave mapping, and speaking with people at the Visitor Center. Call the El Malpais Visitor Center at 505-876-2783 for more information. Even though we interview park rangers, we are not affiliated with the National Park Service, and any views expressed are not necessarily those of the Park Service. We're just fans of the national parks like you. Coming up in episode five of Podcasts with Park Rangers, we speak with education specialist, Ranger Heidi Weiner. She brings science to life in the outdoor classroom of Arches National Park.